If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm chapter 31. Psalm 31, it's on page 461, at the very bottom of 461 in your pew Bible. The uh, majority of the psalm would be found on 462. Uh, the sermon this morning is, is going to serve as sort of a kickoff for our evening service, uh, which begins again uh, in two Sundays on June the 11th. Uh, we're going to be going through a series in the Psalms, a series that we're calling Psalms for the Seasons of Life. And what we mean by that is, is the different kind of emotional seasons that you find yourself in. There are seasons of anger or fear or even hopelessness. There are seasons of joy and gratitude. Uh, those are going to be some of the Psalms and the topics uh, as they relate to those Psalms that we'll look at this summer. Uh, this is kind of, I hope, wet, wetting your appetite for that. Uh, next Sunday, as John mentioned, will be uh, next Sunday evening will be Chris Bennett's ordination service in here at 6 o'clock, uh, and then we'll begin our evening service again in two Sunday nights uh, down in the gathering place at 7 o'clock. So just uh, wanted to prepare you for that. Psalm chapter 31, uh, I'm not going to read all the psalm to begin, I'm just going to read the first eight verses. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. In your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. And you take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you this morning. We are grateful that we are here to worship you. Lord, would you teach us now from your word? Would you write these truths in our heart? Would you comfort us with this psalm, we pray. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Every now and then there are weeks in the life of a pastor as we are preparing a sermon where the sermon, the material that you have, that you're preparing for Sunday comes alive to you that particular week. Something happens to you that week that maybe it's the main point of your sermon, but God in his kind providence illustrates this uniquely to you, the preacher, so that you're now better equipped to preach the sermon to you, the congregation. That happened to me this week. Some of you know this, most of you probably don't, but my house caught on fire on Tuesday morning. I was in the house. Lauren was taking Nathan to school, and I hear this loud crash outside my house. What had happened was this. A massive tree in my neighbor's yard hit a medium-sized tree also in my neighbor's yard, which then hit a third tree in my yard. <laughs> that third tree fell on my power lines, ripping the electricity away from the house, falling down and melting. Now, I say that my house caught on fire. It's a little bit dramatic. The side of my house caught on fire. Okay, there was, Nobody got hurt. My house is not in flames. So there was a rumor going around that my house burned down. That's not true. Okay. There was, a, there was a fire on the side of the house. Okay. It did cause some damage, but, but everything's going to be fine. The fire came down and melted some wiring to my HVAC units. Now, this is what, this is what I did next. Miles, my one-year-old, is sitting in my hand, sitting in my lap. We get up and step out the front door. We see this massive tree that's now in my front yard. I look to the left of my house, and I see smoke billowing out of the left side of my house. Now, I'm not interested in going and investigating, so what I do is I run to the car and put my infant son in the car. 
I run back into the house. I scoop up my two little Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, and I'm running to the car like this with these two big old fat dogs that I can barely carry. Okay, I get them into the car, and then I dial 911. The, uh, the firemen are there very quickly. Uh, of course, they don't know what they're, they know what I've told them on the phone. There's a fire at 3710 Overlook Drive, but they don't really know what they're stepping into. So these four enormous <laughs> firemen in their flame retardant suits and over each of their shoulders is what could accurately be described as battle axes. I mean, they, they got to be prepared for anything. <laughs> they're running into my house with these axes and I'm chasing like, now wait a minute, what are you going to use that thing for? You know, like, it's not as bad as you think it is, okay? Thankfully, they didn't have to use their axe on my house. All they really needed was a fire extinguisher, and they quickly extinguished the fire, and everything was okay, except for just some very minor damage. Not exactly what I had planned for the week. Uh, let me just, in a quick aside, say this. For those of you who did know this happened to us this week, you have been very kind and gracious to us. Some of you have opened your home that we could spend the night there. Some of you have literally opened your refrigerator to us that we could bring our groceries over and they wouldn't spoil. <laughs> Some of you have brought food to our house. Some of you have called or sent text messages. I just want to tell you thank you very much. We have, we have felt the body of Christ wrapping their arms around us this week uh, when we've had some need. So I just I want to tell you thank you for those of you who are involved. Now, back to the sermon. Sometimes in the kind providence of God, he brings things into our life that we don't like. We wouldn't have chosen that for ourselves. It's not fun, okay, but it happened, so how do we respond to that? The Westminster Confession of Faith says, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe there's not even one molecule swimming around in the universe somewhere that's not directly underneath the care and the provision and the governing of God. Every single thing that happens to us is not a, there's no chance, there's not a random accident that happens. He is in sovereign control of absolutely everything. We believe it. And David in this psalm is teaching us that that providence should be a comforting providence for us. He's trying to give us a right perspective on everything that happens in our life. So as we break this psalm up, we see this almost a roller coaster ride that David goes through personally. These first eight verses, he's proclaiming great words of faith. Lord, I trust you. You're my refuge. You're my strength. You're a deliverer for me. These, these wonderful words of courage and strength in God. Your steadfast love. This covenantal relationship that he has with him. There's a lot of disagreement about, about exactly what David is going through that prompts him to write this psalm. <coughs> a lot of times when we study the scriptures, it's very important for us to know exactly the context into which something is written so that we can better understand how to apply it. In this case, we don't know the exact context, and I think that's okay. Because I think the, the most important thing that we can draw away from this psalm is the way in which David responds to it. We can learn whatever he's going through. All we know is it's really bad. Okay? He, he's going to use some words to describe it. But it's how we ought to handle the things that God allows into our life. And David teaches us. Because we so often don't have the right perspective on whatever it is. We don't consider God's providence or his sovereignty. We don't have the right perspective. So therefore, we take counsel in our fears. We take counsel in our doubts and our loneliness and in our anger. We don't take counsel in his word. 
some of us are certain things are going to get worse. Some of us are certain that things are going to get better. (laughs) But are we taking counsel in God and his word? David shows us a better way here. He wants the the believer to be strong and courageous. This this inner spiritual strength. (coughs) A trust in God. Wait on him patiently. Even when everything seems to be turning against you. In this psalm, David goes on to describe betrayal and depression. He describes how his friends have rejected him. There's threats on his life. There's persecution. There's people plotting to take, him, to take his life. The psalm teaches us that God is doing good for us even in the midst of things such as this, such as that David has described. Because we're in a covenantal relationship with him, we can call on him to deliver us, to, to protect us, to be for us what we need him to be. And in verses 2 through 5, David makes this clear. God, I need you to deliver me. Because if you don't, I'm going to die. If my life is on the line here, unless you intervene, Lord, there's, I have no hope. There's nothing that I can do. See, David knows a lot, about things, a lot of things about God to be true. He says, you're my refuge and you're my strength. You're strong. You're a fortress. You're a rock. This, this wonderful language of God. He knows all those things about God to be true. But he's now asking God, will you now be that for me? Don't we, we know a lot of theology swimming around our brains, don't we? We know that God is good. We know his attributes. We know the things that he promises to be. But often in the times of our life, God, will you be that for me now? You've been that for me in the past, or you've been that for my friend that has that great story. Would you be it for me? Because I need you. I'm wasting away in, this, in whatever trial it is in my life. I need you, God. Will you be what I know of you to be true? Will you be it for me now? We know the Bible. We know what's true of God. We want the theology to sink down from our brains and into our heart that we would truly trust him and be comforted by him. I don't know how many of you practice uh, meditating on Scripture. I confess I don't often do it, but there's times that I have, and it's been greatly beneficial to me. Spending long periods of time on one story or one chapter or even a handful of verses. I can tell you that verse 3 has been a time of great, uh, has ministered to me, the Lord has used it in my life, particularly as I've considered, for your name's sake, you lead me and you guide me. (coughs) Only a faithful person could say that. Only someone who has truly had true deep faith in God could you say something like, for your namesake, God, will you lead me and guide me? Because what do we really want to say? God, for my namesake, will you lead me and guide me? For my comfort and my protection and my good and my benefit, will you lead me and guide me? David doesn't say that. I want you to be glorified, God. I want your name to be made great through me. Will you do that? Do you believe it, First Pres? Do you believe that submitting, as David seems to be doing here, that you can truly say, Lord, I submit to you whatever it means for my life. Will you make your name great through me? David is pleading for God's help. In verse 5, you will recognize this. We, we quoted it already in the sermon or in the, in the service this morning. Verse 5, what Jesus says from the cross, into your hand I commit my spirit. We'll come back to that in just a minute. In a lot of ways, verse 5 is the crux of the psalm. Jesus is, as he often does, he is praying the words of Scripture. He does this in many cases, and in one such case here, teaching us that if you're going through a trial, a difficulty, a stressor in life, 
consider the words of Psalm chapter 31, praying them to God. God, I need you to be these things for me right now. Will you? We must commit ourselves wholly to be the Lord's in praying those things back to him. The word commit here is not just a one-time committal. It's, a, it's continuous action. I'm continually committing myself to you, God. As Christians, we need this biblical perspective. Our lives very often, it throws us into despair. The anxiousness of life seems to just choke us out. We need this perspective that David gives us. He's not making light of the trials. He's not making light of anything in our own life. He's not saying, oh, it really doesn't matter. You'll, you'll be fine. He's not saying that. He's saying, cast yourself on God and his providence. No matter what we go through in this life, God is continually caring, directing, guiding. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel like God hears any of your prayers. You say, as David says in other places in the Psalms, how long, O Lord, how long is it going to be till you step in and do what I need you to do? How long is it going to take? Pray the words of this psalm. Pray that he would be for you what you know about him, what the scriptures say about him, that he would be a refuge and strength because you're saddened, you're desperate, you're confused, perhaps you're angry. Are you going through something difficult in your life right now? I'm sure we all could say yes. Pray the words of this psalm. Lord, I want to get to the point in my life where I can say, just as, just as David does, just as Jesus does from the cross, just as, as Stephen does in Acts chapter 7, into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit my eternal life to you. I commit my temporal life to you. You have my times in your hands, as he's going to say in just a moment. David is giving us a right perspective. His circumstances haven't changed, but his perspective is teaching us much. Secondly, <clears throat> a prayer for grace. David has just uttered these great words of faith. God, I trust you. I want you to be all these things. And then we get to verse 9. David has just said, you have set my feet in a broad place. The imagery here is, this is a very narrow pathway that somebody's walking along, and if you're to fall to the right or the left, you're going to fall down to the rocks below. And he's saying, God, you have lifted me from the narrow place to a broad place, this wide path that I can walk on. But no sooner does David say these things that it's as if he descends again back into the sorrow and the desperation and the fear. In the next breath, have you ever done that as you prayed? Lord, I need you. <laughs> Be with me. Thank you for the comfort and strength that you've given me in this moment. I can face these things because I know my times are in your hands, your providential care in my life. And in the next minute, you're like, oh, no, this is awful. This, I'm desperate again. This, this is terrible. Things are not going to turn out right. It, it, it can happen in a matter of a moment that you sink back into that again. And David once again cries out, and he talks about how it feels to go through what he's going through. Can you relate to these things? He's saying that, that the stress of it all is even affecting his own body. I'm wasting away. It's affecting my eyes. It's affecting my bones. The trials of your life done the same. You can't sleep. You're exhausted. You can't think about anything else. It's, it's affecting all of who you are. These things are consuming David. But he enumerates them, and it's as if he's unloading these things before the throne of grace. 
I love listening to my wife pray. My wife is just, she's one of the most honest people that you'll ever meet, but she, you really see this when she prays. You really feel like she is unloading burdens before God and saying, I, I, I got to get rid of this. Lord, would you take this? Can I set it here at your throne of grace? Would you deal bountifully with these things and with me? She just expresses it. Lord, I'm angry with you. I'm frustrated. I'm afraid. I'm lonely. I don't understand. Or I'm, I'm really happy and I'm excited. And I'm joyful. I'm like, honey, how, do you, how are you so honest with your words? She's like, well, he knows what I, he knows what I feel anyway. Might as well just say it. Uh, which, of course, is a great point. Um, she unloads herself. And that's exactly what David is doing here. This is a, just a refreshingly realistic prayer. He, he tells you how he feels. I hate this. It's affecting my body. People hate me. My friends are running away from me. I'm exhausted. So it is with us. The circumstances of our life, they hurt. They're saddened. We're disappointed. The expression of grief and sorrow is often we find on our lips. And God is saying, or David is saying, God has allowed these things. He's guiding your steps. He's doing these things for a purpose. Take comfort in your refuge and strength that is him. In spite of the physical weakness, David proclaims in, four, in verse 14, he begins to come up out of this. The questions of why and how long, they're still there, and they're very often on our own lips too. But it's, he's coming out of it again. As he prays for grace, he now prays a prayer of trust. It's as if he was, he was up here, he sinks again, and the Lord is bringing him again into strength in a prayer of trust. He says, I'm not a victim of random events. There's no fate or chance here. Everything that is happening to me is by God's kind hand. He has orchestrated all of this. And while I don't understand, I take comfort that it's him. I imagine many of you have read, uh, if you haven't, I encourage you to, uh, the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Uh, Corey Ten Boom, uh, well, all of her family, I guess, was in a concentration camp, but her and her sister Betsy uh, were in Ravensbrück concentration camp. It was a women's camp uh, in northern Germany. And I, I don't recall if this was in the book. It may have been in some of the letters that she would write later, but she talks of the first day that her and Betsy arrive at, the con at Ravensbrück concentration camp. And they are lined up with the rest of the women. They're about to be stripped of their clothes and go into these showers and then given their jumpsuits, basically, that they would wear the rest of the time. And if you hear, the, if you hear Corey, Corey is the only one that survived. Betsy would die at the concentration camp. She would talk very honestly about she, that Betsy was really the strong one. She was the one that had the faith. She was the one that would share the gospel with those that were there. But Corey would later say that the day we arrived, I looked at my sister Betsy and I said, I just can't do this. I, this, I can't believe this is happening. She's basically losing her mind. And Betsy looked at her and said, but this is God's will for us. And since it's God's will for us, this is the safest place that we could be. This is our hiding place. What faith does it take to utter words such as that? It's not that everything was going great in life and we just got the great promotion and, and I, I'm so happy at what God's doing in my life. She was about to be stripped down of her clothes, yes, and also her dignity and go into a concentration camp and she says, this is the safest place that we could be. This is our hiding place. If we were to read the next chapter, chapter 32, in verse 7 it says, God is our hiding place. He is our refuge he is our strength. 
He is the safest place that we can be. And whatever providence leads into our life, you are safe there because it's where he is with you. David is lifted up out of this despair and he prays a prayer of trust. And he says it, but I trust in you, O Lord. Circumstances aren't gone. He's still in the same place that he was. But I trust in you, O Lord my God. As if he's renewing again his strength, renewing again his trust in the Lord. We need to daily pray for this perspective in our life. Pray, Lord, would you teach me that what providence has brought in my life that I would be comforted because it's from you. David knows that God will never fail him because he knows that he is his God. This praise seems to reach a climax in verse 19. He says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. David is blessing the Lord with his trust here. David has cried out again, and God has heard him again. David knows that his times are in God's hands, and he's satisfied in that. But he comes back, this kind of lull of desperation that he has, he rises out of that again, and he gives appreciation back to the Lord. It reminds us of the story in Luke chapter 17, when the ten lepers cry out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus heals them, and only one comes back. All of them cried out to God in desperation. One comes back and cries out in appreciation. Don't we often do that? God, please be with you. I need you so much. I need your help. And then he helps you. He delivers you from that and not a word. Do we cry out in appreciation to God the same way we cried out in desperation to him? David's faith has been shaken here, but it hasn't been eliminated. And he continues with his prayer and his praise. The psalm ends in verse 23 and 24, these verses of basically corporate application. Uh, David instructing all the faithful to put their trust in God. He's associating himself with, really, with anyone who puts their hope in the Lord. First Pres, I don't know what providence, God's providence has brought into your life recently. I don't know what it is. But be comforted that it is from his hand. It didn't happen by chance. It didn't happen because he just kind of forgot what he was doing and, and something just slipped by inadvertently. It was from his hand. And no, that doesn't answer all your questions of why, and it doesn't answer all your questions of, but how long is this going to take? It doesn't, but it's from his hand. I bet you have a lot of Charles Spurgeon quotes that you love dearly. I do too. This is my favorite. He says, I have learned to kiss the waves that have thrown me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. I have learned to take the things that have come to me that are hard providences and bless the Lord for them because they have thrown me against my Savior, the only place that I might find refuge and strength and comfort. It's easy when the great providences come, when the promotion, when the clear medical exam comes, that's fine, but it's the hard ones that throw us against our Savior and we should bless Him for them. We must believe this with all of who we are. We must believe this if we're 35 years old and single and we really don't want to be. Your times are in his hands. You must believe this if you're seven years into marriage and you still haven't gotten pregnant. Your times are in his hands. We've got to believe this if we work for the company for 20 years and all of a sudden one day the job is not ours anymore. But 
your times are in his hands. We must believe this when the cancer diagnosis is given to us and not somebody else. Your times are in his hands. We've got to believe this when your life and all that you imagined it would look like years from now, and you get there years from now and it hasn't turned out the way that you wanted it to. All your hopes and dreams didn't come true. But your times are in his hands. These are the waves that are meant to throw us against the rock of ages, who alone can bring you comfort and peace and strength. He's the only one who's a refuge. How many of you have heard the story? Uh, James Montgomery Boyce was the senior pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in, in Philadelphia. And he was diagnosed with cancer. In fact, it, it took his life back in 2000. And upon receiving the cancer diagnosis, he addressed his congregation uh, to tell them, here's, here's the deal, many of you have heard. And, and so this is an excerpt from his address of his church upon receiving a diagnosis of cancer. He says, a number of you have asked what you can do. And it strikes me that what you can do, you're already doing. This is a good congregation, and you do the right things. You're praying, certainly, and I've been assured of that by many people, and I know of many meetings that have been going on. A relevant question, I guess, is when you pray, what should you pray for? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression, though, is that God, who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're very rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. I think it's far more profitable to pray for wisdom for the doctors. Doctors have a great deal of experience, of course, in their expertise, but they are not omniscient, and they do make mistakes. And then also for the effectiveness of the treatment. Sometimes it does very well and sometimes not so well, and that's certainly a legitimate thing to pray for. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have, and yet that's where God is most glorified. And one other thing many of you have done has been sending cards, and I want to tell you how much I appreciate that. But if I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. We've talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. God does everything according to his will. We have always said that. Don't miss this last paragraph. But what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but he doesn't care. But we don't believe that at all. God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. And what Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says is that we have the opportunity by the renewal of our minds, that is how we think about things, actually to prove what God's will is. And then it says, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Is that good, pleasing, and perfect to God? Of course it is. But the point of it is that it's good, pleasing, and perfect to us. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you change it, I promise you would make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept this and move forward. And who knows what God will do? That is a man who truly believed that his times were in God's hands. Who knows what God will do? First Pres, we would do well to remember this. 
Our times are in our hands. Every single day is in his hands. They're not in our boss's hands. They're not in our professor's hands. They're not in whatever medical ailment we have. It's not in those hands. It's in our heavenly Father's hands. What do we need to do with this psalm? We need to meditate on it. We need to read it this afternoon. We need to consider it over the lunch table today. We need to write these truths on our heart because I know each and every one of you, you're dealing with a hard providence in your life right this minute that you don't understand and you need comfort. We can memorize this psalm. We can let it be of comfort and encouragement to us. Our times are in his hands. Even the Son of God says this from the cross and what many believe is the very final things that he says from the cross into your hands I commit my spirit not long before that he he stands in the garden of Gethsemane if it be your will Lord let this cup pass from me but not my will let yours be done with the same submission that we would say the same thing not my will Lord not for my name's sake but for yours let these things be done And that we would learn to kiss the waves that throw us against Christ. We would learn to see them as sweet things. And that we would throw ourselves upon his throne of grace, unloading ourselves to him and thanking him for all that he is and how he loves us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts that are fully submissive to you and whatever you choose to bring in our lives. Lord, we would see your will as good. It is a good thing, whatever it is that you have brought to us, that you seek to glorify yourself. Lord, that we would praise you, we would hold fast to you. These things are hard for us, we often don't understand, but they would send us again to you in prayer. Lord, would you comfort us and encourage us? Would you wrap the body of Christ around us? And we thank you so much for our time and your word and worship this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our hymn of response, Rock of Ages?